You're listening to Connection Church's podcast. You've heard the story of an egg, a clumsy egg with arms and legs. On the wall he sat so tall until he fell on top his head. Down and down and down he goes, no cushion or cloud to soften the blow. What could be his destiny? Fractured skull or broken toe? Indeed, he almost broke in two, his shell in need of tape and glue, feeling sore on the floor, who will make him as good as new? A cry for help went to the king, who sent some men to heal his sting, armed forces on horses doing their best with what they could bring. No magic, no potion, no friend could stop him from his bitter end. Time to do something new. Just he could make him whole again. Filling his life with lots and lots made him happy, or so he thought. Could it be? Certainly fix himself even he could not. We know the tale heard it spoken. None could help him in this poem. But there's one, unlike none, who can fix us when we're broken. All right, well, good morning, Connection Church. How we doing? Good, good. My name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here at Connection Church, and I have the privilege of bringing the word as we begin a new series called Broken. This is going to be a very exciting series, a very in-depth series. We're going to walk through a lot of things that point to our brokenness and our need for the fullness of Christ. So this is a good series to bring your friends and family to. Brandon will be back next week bringing the word, and we're excited about that. But let's do this. Let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll dive into 1 Samuel chapter 8 as we launch this series. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, your word is like a double-edged sword. It is active. It's alive. Lord, use it to pierce our hearts this morning. We thank you so much for everything that you've done already this morning. We thank you for worship. Thank you for the freedom to do so. Lord, as as we engage your word, let it engage us. Father, convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, we ask that this morning you draw people to yourself for salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, at some point in time, we've all had moments where we have said something along the lines of this. God, if you would give me this, my life would be on the incline. Lord, if you, if you give me this, I would feel better about myself. I would feel satisfied, significant, secure in who I am. And, you know... I've done this a lot growing up, and honestly, the thing that I said, God, please give me, well, but I'm, I'm in my late 20s, and I still can't grow a beard. So first off, like, that's one thing I've always been like, Lord, please, please, I just want to wake up one morning and, you know, and, and everyone says, oh, it's so good, you'll, you'll look really good when you're older. I don't care. Like, I just want a beard, you know, so like, but for the most part, growing up, I grew up with a few older brothers, and they met culture's qualification for what manhood looked like. The tall, dark, handsome, you know, and also given the last five years, you add on beard, 
Like that is kind of a, that is a marker of culture, man. You got an awesome beard. That is cool. You know, so I, w- I was always trying to say, God, if I could just be tall, dark, and handsome, then I would be fully satisfied. And I was very, I, I went after that. I would go to the gym with my brothers. I could never keep up. Now, when you line all my brothers up and then you line me, you have tall, dark, handsome, tall, dark, handsome, tall, dark, handsome, and you get to me. I'm the runt of the family. They got tall, dark, and handsome. I got scrawny, um, pale. I don't, I don't know. That's, I don't tan. Like, I've, I've gone out, try to get, you know, darker. It doesn't have just burn red, and then I go back to pale. All right. In fact, Bo, our outreach pastor, this is our first, this is our first like introduction when I first got here. My wife and I moved from Texas last year. Bo, he was up here a few weeks ago and he kind of told that we had a little interesting relationship. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how that got started. Bo came up to me one day after church when we were in the high school and he says, man, I'm so glad you and Christy come over from Texas. I'm so glad you guys are here. And, and man, you, 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 you got that vampire thing going on. You know, the hair and the skin and the Nice to meet you. I'm Cody. You know, <laughs> thank you for drawing out all of my insecurities right here. He meant it as a compliment. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't take it as a compliment. <laughs> I was like, "Did you see that? Like, that's I'm pale. You know that that's not good." And that was all the time, all growing up. I was like, "Man, if I could just obtain that tall, dark, handsome," but God never gave those things to me, obviously. So. But I think God knew what he was doing because recently, as my wife and I are talking about these things, she has said something like, Cody, look, I'm not even attracted to those things. Like, I, I, I like you. Like, so she's not even attracted to the tall, dark, handsome beard. You know, she's not. Now, she could be lying to me. That's one option. Or the second option is, is which I believe is more viable given five years and two kids later, is that she's not attracted to those things. So God knows what he's doing. Now, I can't grow a beard, and for those of us who can't grow full-on beards, you can use this little term that I like to call. God doesn't allow me to have a full beard, maybe because I'm not ready for it, or it's not ready for me, but you guys can use this. I call what I have here, I grow it just for you guys, the gracious glaze. <laughs> just enough. Just enough. So that's what, that's what I would tell you. But on a whole nother level, I can remember things when I say, God, I want this, and he never let me have it, and I'm so thankful that he didn't give me everything I ever wanted. And I'm looking back, and I'm thinking, God, I asked, I, man, I, I remember asking God for a specific relationship. God, just give me this girl. God, just give me this social setting. God, give me this social influence. And he never did. He never gave me these things. But looking back, I'm so grateful that he didn't. Because one of, the more, one of the most disturbing things we see in Scripture is found in Romans 1, where it says God handed the people over to their desires because they continued to reject Him, continued, continued to reject His will in pursuit of their desires. And that's what we see in Romans 1, and we're going to see that take place in 1 Samuel 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 8, and we're going to dive through and see what God has to say to us this morning. I will let you know that this has been a difficult uh, teaching to prepare because God has been dealing with me on so many levels about, about some of this stuff. So let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 10, and we'll pause, and I'll catch everybody up to where we are in the text. It says, when Samuel grew old, He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the second name of his son was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. 
They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said this, Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. I'm going to pause right there just for a second. When it says it displeased Samuel, it literally means Samuel knew that it was evil. Their desires in this matter were evil. And we'll take a look at that in a moment. But verse 7, it says, And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Let's pause there because we were immediately just thrust into 1 Samuel 8. This is about a fourth of the way through the whole book. Samuel is a very important historical theological book that I would encourage you guys to go back and read what's taking place. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to briefly catch us up on what's going on. We immediately see that Israel no longer wants what we call judges. They want kings. And I want to kind of catch us up from that standpoint. When God used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness, they wandered for 40 years. Due to their disobedience, they worshiped false gods, and then eventually God allowed them to enter into the promised land. But what happened is exactly what verse 7 says. They would continue to worship false gods, fall back to their old habits. God would send a judge to come deliver them, bring them back, more of a spiritual leader. A judge, Samuel, is not a king. God was emphatic from Genesis up until this point that he is king, he is ruler of all the world, but specifically he is king over his people who, is, who are Israel. Very emphatic that he is king. So Samuel's going to be the last judge because Israel demands a king now. And because they have been disobedient time after time after time after time, rejecting God, rejecting their purpose, rejecting God's purpose for their life, God is going to allow them and hand them over to their desires. Now, there's a nuance we need to clear up. God hands people over to their desires, but he does not necessarily give them their desires. That means that God allows us to pursue our desires on our own, in our own strength, when we continue to reject Him. That's one of the most disturbing things we see in Scripture. So Samuel's getting old, his sons fail to do the job, and Israel demands a king. The concept of a king in this text, it's not a bad thing. God has promised them a king eventually in His time, not theirs. The concept of a king is not a, not a big deal. God promised Abraham, kings will come from you. He says it again in Deuteronomy, kings will come. It was the intent. Notice, they never, not once did they ask God for his will. They demanded a king. They didn't wait around. They didn't say, God, we want to pray for your will to be done in our, in our nation of Israel. No, they just said, Lord, we know the answer to solve all of our problems. We want a king. Give us a king. It wasn't a request. It was a demand. So God instructs Samuel to warn the people that this is not his plan. In the verses 11 through 17, God uses Samuel to warn the nation of Israel 
of what the king will do. And we're not going to read that because it can be summed up in three words. He will take. That's what the king will do. This king you so desire will take, 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 and take. Ultimately, he's going to leave you little to nothing, and then he's going to enslave you. That's what verse 17 says. This king will lead you into slavery, a concept all too familiar to Israel. You would think after hearing that warning from God, they would be like, okay, we get it, we get it, we get it. We do not want to go back to slavery. We do not want to go back to slavery because we put ourselves there. So let's read. It's important to know that six times in six verses it says he will take. That's all the king is going to do. Let's read verses, let's read on in verses 18 through 22. After they realize they've become slaves, this is what will happen. Verse 18 says, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. That's an important phrase. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. We shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. So despite the disturbing consequences of their sinful desires, they still want to reject God. They say, no, give us a king. The consequences, number one, was slavery. Number two was that they would cry out and God would not respond for a season. Church, that should be one of the most disturbing images that we have in our walk with with Christ is not hearing from God. That should disturb us deeply. When we're not hearing from God, we should know that there is something not right and that there's something there preventing us from hearing God. There's something there keeping us from seeing God in his word. And he speaks majority through his word. The side effect of somebody who has come to faith is that we desire to hear from God. Is that our desire this morning? I pray that it is as we continue because we're going to take a look at what those things are that keep us from hearing from God. We see in this passage, their motives are revealed. Their motives are they want satisfaction. They want significance. They want security. They want a new identity. Are those things bad? Significance, satisfaction, and security? No, those things are not bad. In fact, they're good. But the means in which we try to attain those things is very important. They're, they're putting all of their hope, their faith, their love, their trust in other gods and now an earthly king. They're looking for that new identity. They're wanting to reject the identity that God has given them. They don't seem to be too satisfied with the identity that God has given them. And sometimes, sometimes we can feel that way. God, I'm a Christian, but I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. They're rejecting who God called them to be for who they wanted to be. It's all about identity. So who were they supposed to be? Who were the Israelites supposed to be? We can see that in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. It'll be up on the screen for you. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, it says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The word holy literally means to be set apart, to be different. That's who Israel was supposed to be. A nation set apart for God's purposes and by, by obeying God's will and by loving God, notice when God loves us and we understand that love and we comprehend that grace and we receive that grace, we desire to, to follow him. In fact, Ezekiel says that when the spirit comes into our lives, he moves us, he compels us, he drives us to want to be more like Jesus. But they're rejecting this identity. They will find significant satisfaction and security through God's will. That's a promise of scripture. But then why are they not, why are they not feeling it right now? The answer's simple, and the answer again is in verse seven, because they had never gotten to the point where they were being the nation that God had called them to be. They had moments of faithfulness, but never a lifestyle. So they're rejecting an identity that they never even pursued. So that's from the text. What about, us for, what about for us today? It's hard to translate this text because we're not looking for a king. Yes, we are. In fact, I'd say that we're all searching for a king of sorts, but we can find out who we're supposed to be in Christ by flipping to Peter, 1 Peter 2.9. I'm going to read through 10. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You guys notice something that Peter what he's saying the church is to be, what you and I are to be, who, who and what we're supposed to find our identity in, is the very same thing that he was telling Israel, is the very same thing that God was telling Israel back in this chapter of Exodus. We're, just, we're still to be the same people. We're still to be holy, set apart. We're still to be a blessing to the world by sharing the gospel message. God's heart for people has never changed. Not once. His mission has always been that from his love, we go share his love with those around us. That's been his heart from day one. He tells Abraham, he says, I will make a, I'll make you a father of many nations and you will be a blessing to all the world. How do we become a blessing? By sharing the love of Jesus. That's what it looks like for us today. By finding our identity, our security, significance, and satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. Realizing that he and he alone is the only one who can fill us up when we're feeling empty. That's what that looks like. And that's who we're supposed to be. We're called to be a blessing to the world, not to become it. And so often we're willing to conform our lifestyles to that of culture so that we can find temporary satisfaction, significance, and security, saying, God, we know how to please ourselves, and we're going to do so. But what if I told you that the key to finding those things, one, was in the gospel, but two, hinges upon us not conforming to the pattern of the world? Paul says that in Romans 12, too. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to test and discern what the perfect and pleasing will of God is, the perfect, good, and pleasing will of God. 
The things that will satisfy us are found in doing the will of God and the way we do this and the way we uncover this clearly and see it clearly is by not conforming to the culture around us. Israel is desiring to conform and they will be missing out on something special. And it's no accident that in Exodus 19, God says, Israel, this is who you will be. And then in Exodus 20, we find the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, this is who you are. This is who I've called you to be. This is where your identity will be satisfied, secure, and significant. This is how you get there, by placing no one or nothing before Jesus, before God, before our calling that God has called us to. It's no accident. And why is that the first, and, and why is that the first commandment that we see? There's three things I want us to take away. The first one is this. This is why it was so important, because envy and idolatry always leads to emptiness. Envy and idolatry always lead to emptiness. We see that from the text. Immediately, we see God saying, look, the issue here is, is that they like to worship other gods. They like to worship false gods. And then twice in this whole text, it says they want to be like other nations. Envy and idolatry. And it's, it's important to know, church, that envy and idolatry are closely related and nearly synonymous. Because it's kind of like, well, what comes first, envy or the idolatry? Do we envy something and then it becomes an idol? Or, or is idolatry when we attain the thing that we've been envying and then we begin to live for it? They're really closely related. That's why both of them drive home the point that it leads to emptiness. They wanted a king out of envy and idolatry. And here's the reality is that the gods of today, the gods that they were worshiping back then, false gods, are still very much active and alive here and amongst us today. They would literally erect a statue, a temple, an altar, and sacrifice to the gods of money, power, prosperity, sex, you name it. They had a god for everything. Just in case they missed a couple of gods, they would have an altar to somebody, a god they didn't know. Just in case, they want to cover all their bases. And as I'm preparing this text, I'm thinking, but we don't bow down to, I mean, they would literally go bow down before these, before these idols, these, god, these false gods, and sacrifice to them, sacrifice their kids to them, sacrifice their time to them, sacrifice everything they had for them. And I'm reading the text, I'm like, we don't bow down. You don't see us going and putting our iPhone on the mantle and going, yes, thank you for the iPhone. You don't see us taking a plate of food and bowing down to it. Thank you, food, for, for sustaining us. You don't see me putting things like, I don't know, shoes and saying, thank you for the God of shoes. We don't put a stack of dollar bills and bow down and worship them. We may not bow down to them, but one thing I've uncovered through this text is that we certainly break our backs for them. We still sacrifice to these gods of our time and our talents and our treasures, the things that God has gifted us in. We still sacrifice to these gods by the way we live, by the things that we chase. They don't have to bow down. Because in many cases, we already break our backs for them. And they haven't changed much. A.W. Tozier, he said, look at man and all of his advancements. He's still just a man. 
no matter how much changes, we have actually more things to worship now than they did back then. But the heart of man has not changed. So in a sense, everything has changed, but in also in another sense, nothing has. We still have these things present in our lives. The idolatry of money, the idolatry of sex, the idolatry of our kids, the idolatry of power and position and authority. We still have those things present in our lives. You know, for example, money. We, idol, the idolatry of money is a huge deal in our nation. It's been a huge issue in my life. And idolatry for money can come in two different forms. Idolatry comes in excessive and reckless spending or stingily hoarding. And the Bible brings us to a sinner that says, you save and give generously. This is not a financial education class. We're just simply covering some bases here. And then also we have the, the gods of sex. A lot of people will call sexuality the new religion. We have placed sex, sexual um, desires, um, sexuality, uh, sexual preference, we have placed these things on a pedestal in our culture, and we fight for these things more than we do the God who gives us these things to use in proportion according to his will. You know, for example, in, young, in, in college age, young adults, even in adults, teenagers even, hookup culture is huge. Hookup culture is you get physically involved but not emotionally attached. You engage in the sexual activity and you don't look, you don't, you don't speak, you don't do anything, you just go, you do your thing and, you, and you're done. And everybody says that that's the way to go because you don't get emotionally involved. But all the research, not just Christian research, all research is pointing, though, that these things are devastating and destroying people's lives because it is impossible to separate sex from emotional and, more importantly, sex from spiritual. It's impossible. We're finding that more and more people who are engaging in these things are finding themselves internally devastated. They may not fess up to it out front, but they will behind closed doors when they're across our desks as pastors talking to us about these things. That's the reality. In love, we so easily make love a God. And you say, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. God is all about love. Yeah, he is all about love. That's a core doctrine of what we do. That's how we are to go reach the people. That's how we're to care for others. But we elevate love above God. And so in doing so, we say, Love is God, which goes contra to what the scripture says, that God is love. We mistake the two. We swap them, and we place relationships with our kids, relationships with our boss, relationships with our spouses, you name it. We place relationships in the name of love above God, when the reality is, is that God is love, not love is God. And I will tell you this from personal experience with a mentor of mine a long time ago, any relationship that, is, that, is, that has a surface or an infiltration of idolatry will always crush under unmet expectations. Every time. When we expect our kids to, to be the perfect kids, we will be let down. And when, when we expect our, our boss to do what he or she says she's going to do, we will be let down because we're all humans. We cannot place our faith in broken people because broken people cannot fix broken people. Sick people cannot make sick people well. That's why we have Jesus to place our faith, our hope, our trust, and love in somebody who is perfectly not broken. 
and power and position. That's another famous God. If I just get this, this position of authority, God, you will allow me to have what I desire, or you will, I, will be able to, I will be able to have more security, significance, and satisfaction in my life if I have this position of power. We mistake power for security when oftentimes the more power and authority we have, the more we have to lose, but also the bigger target that paints on our back, and the more we're looking over our backs to figure out who's coming after our power, because unless we are secure in Christ, our power and position will not secure us. And it's important to know that these things are not bad in and of themselves. Money, sex. I've been married five years, two kids. All my married people said sex is good, right? Amen. These are good things. Power, position, authority. If, if the things that God has blessed us with, if we steward them the way that God has said to steward them, they will satisfy and they will provide joy in our lives. But that's so often not the case. Love is phenomenal. But we cannot forget that God is love. And the reality of idolatry and envy is that idolatry and envy, it always places the emphasis on I which blinds us and keeps us from serving God and serving others out of love, which is what he has called us to. So when, we're, when we have idolatry in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised when, when we're not serving, when we're not involved, when we're not giving, when we're not evangelizing, when we're not teaching people the love of Jesus because we have idols that we're dealing with in our lives that are keeping us from doing that. Just to give you guys a quick statistic, we're a pretty large church for this community Yet we 30%, we only have 30% of our people actively involved. Actively involved. And I know from my walk, if I'm honest, if I'm honest with myself, the reason why I didn't pursue God the way I should have been back in the day was because, and still a struggle for us today, was because I was beginning to place things, people, before God. I was so wrapped up in what I was doing that I was neglecting what he would like me to do. And that leads us to the next thing. These are all rooted, envy and idolatry are rooted out of selfish and sinful desires. And sinful desires always lead to destruction and division. Every time. See, what happens in, this, in, the, in 1 Samuel 8, rather than finding the significant satisfaction and security they were looking for, rather than finding the identity that they were so craving, God, we, we don't want you as king anymore because you haven't satisfied us, what they found was exactly what God said they would find, slavery. Rather than finding what they were looking for, they found slavery. And it's important to know that these things cause destruction and division because it only took three kings Three kings, and the nation of Israel was literally broken in two, the northern and the southern. Three kings, roughly about 112 to 120 years, when God was sustaining them, pursuing them, graciously forgiving them, graciously calling them back to himself for hundreds and hundreds of years prior to that. It only took three kings because of the very thing that they desired led to their destruction. How true is that in our life today? The things that we desire often lead to destruction. We go, we partake, and we wake up in the morning feeling shame and guilt and condemnation. We get that raise only to find out that we just want more money. We get that position to say it's not enough. 
we repeat the cycle over and over and over and over. And this is what sin does to our lives. Like the king in 1 Samuel 8, sin will just take, 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 and take. Sin, like the king, demands everything but gives nothing. In fact, what it does is it destroys our lives. It leads to divisions of churches and marriages. It leads to unfaithfulness. It leads to more and more and more brokenness. It leads to, in a lot of cases, it leads to physical death. And if we have rejected and continue to reject the Father, then it leads to an eternal spiritual death. This is what sin has to offer. This is what idolatry and envy has to offer. And this all, this all comes from a root issue. And it's a very Americanized, individualized gospel that we hear that it's all about us. We are more concerned with the pursuit of happiness than we are the pursuit of holiness. When in pursuit of holiness, we will find the security, the satisfaction, the significance, the identity that you so crave, that I so crave. Those things are found when we set ourselves apart because God has already set us apart. When he calls us and we obey, those things are promised if we will follow him. but we're so focused on the pursuit of happiness. And happiness, look, it's political season. If we're voting, I'm pro-happy, okay? It's a good thing. But happiness is based on situational circumstances that change all the time when the pursuit of holiness brings joy. And joy, you can find contentment regardless of situation and circumstance. That's the promise of Scripture. In some of my darkest days, in some of Christy and I's darkest days, we have been able to find joy in the Lord. And people are like, how are you making it through this situation? Because we refuse to allow sin to lead us back into slavery in the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of being set apart is a promise of satisfaction because that's where joy is found. And the final thing here is know who is king in our lives. I had the title for the sermon called We're Searching for a King. And that's true. I honestly believe that we are all searching for something to reign on our hearts to give us an identity. And there's a reason why that new car did not satisfy you the way you thought. There's a reason why that phone did not satisfy you. There's a reason why that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that spouse, there's a reason why these people, places, and things are not satisfying you the way you thought they should, and that's because we are filling a God-sized hole with temporary, perishable items. It's the reason why we lay in bed at night looking up going, what is going on? The key is knowing who is king. Israel had forgotten this. They had forgotten how faithful God has been. And when we forget how faithful God has been, we will fall back into the very thing that God was faithful to bring us out of in the first place. We cannot forget his faithfulness. That's why we have to bring ourselves before him daily saying, Lord, renew me. Lord, speak to me. Lord, show me yourself through the word. Lord, speak to my heart. Convict me where I need to be convicted. Comfort me, Lord. In chapter 7 of Samuel, of this, of this book of Samuel, you'll see that God delivered Israel from the Philistines. When the Israelites had gotten their butts handed to them twice, 
because they went without the Lord and they lost two battles and a lot of people. And then God shows up. They do nothing. God does everything, which is the story of our salvation, the story of our repentance. God does everything. We do nothing. We, we merely respond to what he is wanting to do. And that's what it takes. It's as simple as that. But they had forgotten that God had brought them from the Philistines, that God had saved them prior. 30 years passes by from chapter 7 and chapter 8. There's a 30-year gap. The author did that on purpose because he wants you to see the irony of people walking away from God when they forget their faithfulness. We cannot afford to forget the faithfulness of God because it leads to falling back into the very thing he was faithful to bring us out of. In 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16, we're not going to read it. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. It essentially says that God is the author of all life. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. Do we believe that this morning? Do we, read, do we orient our lives? Do we move according to his will? Are we asking him to speak into our hearts to give us significant satisfaction and security? Because it's important to know that in this passage, they are rejecting the king. They are rejecting the king. Israel never fully recovered from this moment. They had moments again of faithfulness, but never a lifestyle of repentance, never a lifestyle of walking with God. God was faithful to grab as many people that would love him and, and use them to bring about the Messiah. God was faithful even when they're not. And that's, what, that's our story too. When we walk away, he is still pursuing us. But there will be a point in time where he says, hey, listen, you just continue to reject me, therefore pursue your desires. And that's, that's disturbing. But they never fully recovered. Fast forward some thousand, thousand thirty years, and you find John nineteen fifteen before Jesus is before Pilate, and they're saying, Pilate says, "Shall I crucify your king?" And this is what they say in John nineteen fifteen. They say, "Take him away, take him away, crucify him." Shall I crucify your king? Pilate says, and they say, "We have no king but Caesar." They never recovered from this sin of First Samuel chapter eight. These are Israel's leaders talking. Are we rejecting the king of our lives? Colossians talks about, talks about our fullness only comes from God. His grace and his love is enough to satisfy us, secure us, and give us the significance that we so crave. When so many of us in here are looking and searching in other directions, and you're not going to find anything because these things lead to emptiness. But this is a good thing that we've uncovered this morning, that we are empty, because it is not until we recognize that we are empty that we need, that we see the need to be filled by the Holy Spirit and saved and set apart for God's purposes. So don't feel condemned in this moment. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. What you may be feeling is conviction leading to repentance. But for those who are not in Christ, he is calling you to himself. Will you respond to this? It's not as easy as setting aside, just simply setting aside our idols. If that were the case, they would not be idols. 
It's not enough to change the behavior because these are on the surface of something that takes place in the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above and beyond all things. It's the reason why we say, I don't have an idol. This guy's a whack job. He's crazy. That's the reason we say those things is because the heart is deceitful above and beyond all things. And it says, the only one who can comprehend the heart is God. So therefore, I'll submit to you that if the only one who can comprehend the heart is God, then he is the only one who can do something about it. He's the only one that can provide the grace, the fullness, the satisfaction, the security that we so desire. And these things, significant satisfaction and security, are meaningless and unattainable unless salvation takes place. So that's the invitation this morning. For believers, this is a time of repentance. But for those of us who do not know the Lord, if you say this morning that today is the day of salvation, I recognize my sin, I recognize I'm empty, I recognize that I need to be filled, and what I've been doing is not working, but I feel that God is calling me to himself, your heart may be beating 90 miles an hour, you may be trying to figure out what's going on. That's called the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention, saying, wake up. If that's you this morning, you say this morning, today is the day of salvation, if that's you, what we're going to do, we're going to ask you just to raise your hand, and we're going to celebrate with you. That's, that's what's going to happen. So if that's you this morning, you say, today is the day of salvation. I place my faith, hope, trust, love, everything in Jesus to, full, to have faith that he will satisfy me and save me. If that's you, we just lift your hand this morning. Just raise your hand high so we can see you, so we can celebrate. Amen. Anybody else? Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Anybody else? God is wanting to move in your life, so we're going to go into a moment of worship. And I'm going to pray, and you can stand. We're going to have our prayer team over here. If there are things that you need to work out and talk about and pray through, we'll have a prayer team over here ready for you. Otherwise, I'm going to ask you to stand after we pray, and you can worship, and I'll come out and close us here in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your significant satisfaction, security that you provide us through salvation. Thank you for giving us an identity that is greater than anything anybody else or anything else can provide for us. You are God. You are God alone. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the death to life that just took place in Jesus' name. Amen.